me as we look at the scripture today? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're grateful. Uh, we're grateful that you're present with us, Jesus, whenever we're gathered together. Uh, we invite you to be our teacher and our guide. Uh, help our hearts to hear what you want us to hear today. Help us to be encouraged by you, forgiven and accepted by you, challenged by you, uh, sent out into the world that you love. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So not that long ago, Chris and I were talking about how our families use different utensils when you're serving a dessert. Anybody else have this thing? We've known each other 20 years. We're still discovering this kind of stuff. So she brings it up recently. She just says, Did you? I don't even know which one does which, actually, which kind of makes the illustration even better. Somebody hands out spoons with a dessert, especially if there's cake and ice cream. Which one are you supposed to use? Somebody hands out forks. Are you a spoon person or a fork person if you have cake or ice cream? If you're eating ice cream, do you use a fork or a spoon? Spoon people, raise your hand. Fork people, raise your hand. Okay, so there's, I'm a fork person? Of course, my family's wrong. <laughs> fork people, raise your hands again. We're gonna start a missional community. Meet me in the back. Probably as you grow older in your life, you find out that some of the things you've learned in your family aren't exactly the same things as what, how, the ways other people live their lives and engage. You don't need to be married to learn that. Everybody learns that some way, way, shape, or form. You know, whatever food you ate as a kid, whatever language you used, whatever TV shows you watched or didn't watch, those all just seem normal to you when you're young, right? You don't really have a point of reference. Uh, and then, you, you get older and you realize, oh, not everybody does this exactly the way that the, the group that I grew up with does it. And more serious things, infinitely more serious things than which fork or spoon you use or don't use. Things like um, what your views are related to politics, how you think about money, how you um, deal with conflict, how you engage with people, whether you like a group of people or don't like a group of people. Those things are learned when you're a child from the people that you're around, the adults, the parents, whoever it is that's with you when you're young. And then as you, you grow up, you realize all these values and perspectives that are handed to you or passed on to you as a child are, are ways of seeing the world. They're viewpoints. And, and then you learn that not everybody else has the exact same viewpoints on all of these different pieces. So one of the things that I learned growing up in my childhood uh, was how to be white. I learned how to be white. I didn't really know I was white. I mean, I knew what color my skin was, but I didn't know that I was culturally white. We didn't sit around the dinner table in my family and talk about being white and what that meant. Yet, at the same time, I learned all sorts of ways of seeing the world and acting in the world that I later found out were part of white culture. Some of those ways of seeing the world and acting in the world are very positive. Some of those ways of seeing the world and acting in the world are damaging to myself and to other people. Now, I don't think I really knew there was a white culture until I was a young adult, as I said. I would have been able to say there was a black culture and a Hispanic culture and an Asian culture. I probably could have named eight or 10 different cultures but I wouldn't have been able to describe white culture. I couldn't have described it because 
it's the air I was breathing. It's the, you know, so to speak, the water that I was swimming in. I needed to engage with people who were not like me, who didn't look like me, in order to figure out and see my own culture. And that's one of the gifts of having relationships with people who aren't like you, is they help reflect back to you some of your own values and perspectives. So we're in this series right now called Every Tribe, Tongue, and Nation. And that comes from the book of Revelation. The main idea behind the conversation is that the diversity of culture and language that we experience in the world is a gift from God. It's not a sin. It's a gift that God intends to give us. And this picture in Revelation 7-9 shows us what life will be like for people who have faith in Christ, enter a worshiping community that's multicultural. Here's how it reads in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation and tribe, people and language, standing before the throne, the throne of Jesus Christ, and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And the description goes on in the chapter. But the, but the image Pastor Stephanie shared with us two weeks ago of the end of the story, biblically speaking, is that this is a gift that God wants us to give. In the end of the story, we don't revert back to a monocultural existence. Instead, we live for all eternity among people from different tribes and tongues and nations, all under the banner of worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? But in order to receive this gift that God wants to give us, we need to become aware of our cultural and racial biases and blindnesses in order to be able to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ includes people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So I want to look briefly today at two conversion stories in Scripture, in the book of Acts. Specifically, I want to look at how the gospel of Jesus Christ causes two key leaders to completely recognize their own cultural blindness, okay? So we're going to start with a guy named Saul. Some of you may be familiar with Saul. He later, his name was changed to Paul, so that could be confusing if you're reading the book of Acts. Sometimes he's called Saul, sometimes he's called Paul. Same guy, not a different guy. Saul was a highly zealous Jew. That meant that he cared deeply about the purity of the religious law, the Jewish religious law, and the Jewish tradition. And he committed himself to strict observance of this law and these practices, and he even sought out permission from his leadership, the Jewish religious leadership, to go and persecute people who he viewed and they viewed as a threat to Orthodox Jewish belief. While on his way to arrest some people who were following Jesus, they were Jewish people who were following the way of Jesus, followers of the way they were called at that time, Saul is confronted by Jesus as he's traveling, and here's how the story goes in chapter 9 of Acts. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that refers to Christian people, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now God sends uh, a man named Ananias to bring healing into Paul's life as he waits in Damascus. And skipping ahead to verse 17, that encounter sounds like this. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was converted through this encounter with Jesus, supernatural encounter with Jesus, to belief in Jesus as the Son of God. That's one of the conversions that happens to Saul in this, in this experience. Blindness is used both physically and more metaphorically in the scripture to help us understand what uh, Saul's inability to see Jesus and to understand the implications of Jesus as the Son of God. Now Saul immediately begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogues to the same people that he had letters with permission to take to jail in Jerusalem. So it took them a while to accept him, as you might imagine. They maybe thought it was a trick. But later, Paul would come to understand that his conversion was not only about faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, which he was deeply committed to, but it was also a conversion of his thinking about people who were not Jewish, referred to as Gentiles in the New Testament scriptures. And so let me read you uh, how Saul tells this story that we just read of his own conversion, of his own experience of Jesus, uh, to some Roman leaders, some judges, uh, many chapters later in the book of Acts. He's recounting this experience. Listen to how he describes the exact same thing of him being struck blind on the road to Damascus. This is in chapter 26 in verse 12. It says, uh, he's again, he's speaking to these people who have him on trial in the Roman court system. He says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? It just means for you to resist what I'm up to. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them, the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may see, receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Paul summarizing his own experience of this in uh, what he heard from Jesus. So now in retelling this story, 
Paul describes his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but he also describes his conversion as somebody who's now sent to the people that he was not allowed to speak with before that, the Gentiles. So in some ways, Paul has a double conversion. This is a shocking change of course from someone who went from thinking not even all the Jewish people are worthy of God, just the ones who are highly observant, to now saying God has sent me from the Jewish people to people who don't observe any of the Jewish laws in order to welcome them into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul had to be knocked off a donkey for him to see this level of blindness in his life. He had severe cultural blind spots that didn't allow him to not only see that other Jewish people could be included in the kingdom of God, but non-Jewish people could be included in the kingdom of God. He's maybe the least likely ambassador to the Gentiles you can imagine. Before this experience in Paul's life, he was blind to the reality of Jesus as the Son of God, and he was blind to the reality of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. And hearing the gospel, encountering Jesus, healed him of both of those blindnesses. The scales fell from his eyes so he could see, one, that Jesus really was the Son of God, and two, that people are not excluded from the kingdom of God based on their cultural background. And that became the good news that drove Paul's life. Let me summarize the second conversion story of a leader named Peter in Scripture. Now, Peter has a very similar conversion experience in my view. God gives Peter a dream, where in the dream, three times, he's told to not call certain foods unclean that he previously thought were unclean as an observant Jew. And as he wakes up from the dream, there's men at the door inviting him to come and speak and visit with a Gentile centurion, someone serving in the army, who's asking him to come and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And so he enters their house, and one of the first things he says to them is, do you know that it's against the Jewish law for me to have entered your house? But God has revealed to me that I am called to bring you this news and to engage with you in this way. And then in Acts chapter 10, I love this just way that he puts it as he realizes what's happening in the moment. This is how he describes it real briefly as he's speaking to them. He says, I now realize, those are really important words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I now realize, he says. Another way to put that is, I couldn't see this before. I was blind to this reality before, but now I see. I realize. I know. I understand. I can have been led by the Holy Spirit into this encounter. It required a conversion of me, though. It wasn't something I was just going to come to on my own. The Spirit had to interact in my life in a way that helped me get to this point. When I understand the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross, I, I'm now getting that everyone from every cultural background is invited to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I didn't get that before. When healing of blindness comes, in our lives, in the lives of these leaders. 
more people are able to participate in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. When healing of blindness comes, more people are invited and are able to participate in the kingdom of God. These men moved from blindness to sight in part because Jesus made them to do it, right? He knocked them down. He came to them in dreams. He, need, he knew that we needed to understand this point or our church would not be what it is. These men moved from blindness to sight as they grew in their understanding um, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So cultural bias and blindness was an obstacle that the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, had to help Paul and Peter overcome in order for the gospel to go forward in the first century and for them to live out the mission that God had for them. I want to name for you today that racism is a spiritual blindness in the 21st century that is threatening to prevent us from including people in the kingdom of God who rightfully belong in the kingdom of God. We need God to help us overcome our racial biases. If we want to get this gift that God wants to give us of living in a worshiping community that includes every tongue and tribe and nation. Now maybe when you hear me say the word racism, you might wonder, well, what do you mean by that? Which is a common, a common response that we all have. So let me define it for you. Race, in my view, is a social construct. Social construct means we created it, humans created it. It's not an inherent thing that's in anybody's DNA. It is something that we created as humans. And we created it to separate groups of people by physical appearance to create a hierarchy of human value. It's not something God created. It's an incredibly powerful force, both in interpersonal interactions and also in systems. Racism is an evil tool used to devalue people based on their cultural and physical backgrounds and prevent us from receiving this gift that God wants to give us of worshiping with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what, this major obstacle of receiving this gift is that many of us are unaware of these cultural biases that we have, of these racist or racial biases that we have. And if we want to do this, if we want to receive this gift that God has for us, then we have to be willing to acknowledge that we have some of these biases. We have to be able to look at our own cultural backgrounds and say, this is helpful and aligns with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not helpful slash sinful and doesn't align with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for some of us who've been part of the majority or the dominant culture for most of our lives, like I have, you first have to start with realizing that you have a culture. And you have to be able to describe what it is in order to be able to evaluate its strengths and its weaknesses. Especially, I want to say this one more time, if you grew up as part of the majority culture, the dominant culture, part of the group that was considered normal when you were growing up, right? You don't have to describe white culture if white culture is the thing that everybody assumes. That's why I didn't know what it was when I was a kid then you may never have had an opportunity to become aware of the values embedded in the cultural context that you grew up in. You may just think that's the way things are. That's what normal looks like. 
but not everybody else experiences life that way. So it's critical for us to be able to acknowledge that we have this cultural background, that we have racial biases, that we sometimes have racist biases, that we have to acknowledge and, and account for and repent of if we want to live in a multicultural kingdom that God wants to give us. So what can we do about this? What can we do about racial blindness? If, it, if it's really a spiritual blindness that's preventing us from receiving this gift, what can we do about it? Well, we can do what Jesus invites us to do with any, any sin in our lives, right? We can repent and believe. We can repent and believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If racism is part of um, a spiritual blindness, here's what's really confusing to me, and I'm, I'm part of this, right? So don't feel judged. I'm judging myself too. If racism is a form of spiritual blindness, if it's a sinful blindness that some of us have, many of us have, as Christians, shouldn't we be the first people to admit that we have that? The defensiveness of it is really mystifying to me in some ways. We feel defensive. If, if you were here last week and you heard Grace give her sermon, at the beginning of the sermon, she named some really hard historical realities. I felt it. I shuddered in my seat as she named it. And I felt this, this defensiveness and like, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to admit it. I don't want to own it. I, I wasn't part of it. All these things that come up in us when we hear these things. But, but isn't the, the heartbeat of Christian faith that we all need to come to this communion table to receive forgiveness for all the things that we've done wrong? Isn't the heartbeat of Christian faith that we've been created in the image of God and sins distorting that? Some of the sins that we've committed and, and sins that other people have committed and sins that systems have committed, isn't that the whole story? And isn't the hope that because we all need that forgiveness and healing from Jesus Christ that we have some level of equality in Christian community as a result? Because none of us can brag for being better than the other? And isn't the hope of Christian faith that we have a way to find forgiveness and healing from those things that are tearing us down through faith in Christ, so that we can be sent back out as whole people in the world to do the things that God's called us to do. So if you're like me, and sometimes you feel defensive when this conversation of race comes up, or if you're a white guy who feels embattled by the conversation around uh, privilege or whatever, just pay attention to where that defensiveness is coming from. In many ways, we as Christian community ought to lead the way and say, no, no, we admit that we have sins. We admit that we have sinful biases. We know that we need forgiveness. We know that we've done wrong. We know that our ancestors have done wrong. Let's, let's get into it. Let's allow Jesus to heal us. Let's come around Christian unity and find ways forward so that everybody from every tribe, tongue, and nation can feel included and equal in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. In, uh, in this group that I'm part of, there's a, a group of guys that meet, and they're all white guys, which doesn't help with the diversity conversation. But we've started having this, this conversation on and off about uh, ways white men see the world that might have racial bias or even racist bias included in them. And it's been a great conversation. In fact, when one of the members of our group sort of raised their hand one morning and said, I want to admit something to the rest of you. I want to tell you about a racist thought 
that went through my brain recently and describe it to you and invite you to help me feel the forgiveness that comes from naming that and asking for forgiveness. Wow, did that take some courage. And then he named it, and then other people around the, the group were like, okay, like, I, yeah, I have some of these thoughts too. That's what the gospel sounds like, right? Have you ever been in a group where someone admitted something that they did wrong and the freedom that came for everybody else to go, oh yeah, I don't have it all together either? We really need these kinds of conversations instead of just shoving these things under the rug and thinking that they're going to, um, that they're going to resolve themselves. My friend Francois Zanga, who's been part of this congregation for a long time and cares a lot about thinking about racism and, and racial bias, has told me uh, from his perspective, as somebody from Burkina Faso, he says, I think that we need to understand that everybody's on a spectrum of racial bias. It's not just you're either a racist or not a racist. We all have different experiences, different growth edges, different places where we need to learn. And we should just learn to say I'm, I'm somewhere on this racial bias spectrum, which I think is very helpful. In the class that Kathy and Ramon teach, they use this spectrum to help us analyze where we are in our ability to engage interculturally with other people. So if you want to look at it with me for a second, they will do a much better explanation of this in the class, shameless plug for their class. But on the left side, it's a monocultural mindset, a mindset that is used to only operating with people who all are like me and look like me. And on the right is an intercultural mindset. And there's a movement from complete denial that what I'm talking about even exists to polarization, being uh, you know, opposed to other groups, to minimization, which is like, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not as big of a deal as other people are making it out to be. Uh, to accepting the reality of this and accepting your own need to grow, to adaptation, to live and behave differently in light of intercultural relationships. So what Francois is trying to say, and I agree with this, we're all somewhere on this. We're all somewhere. And, and you might take this assessment and find out you're further left than you really want to admit that you are. We have friends in our congregation who have done that, and that's where they've ended up. And we say, no, it's so much better to know where you are and where you have growing to do than to just stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not an issue. So we're all, we're all in this space somewhere. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, invites us to admit where we have these sinful tendencies and move into the light. Let me invite the band to come back up. I'm almost done. Here are a handful of steps for action for you all. I know some of you said, these are hard sermons because I want to do something, and it is important to do something. So let me name some of the ways in which you might move forward. First step is um, just admit it. Admit that we have a bias. Admit that you don't understand what it's like to live the same way that someone else lives from a different cultural background. Commit to learning what your biases are. Huge first step. Step number two, repent. And I use that word intentionally. Ask for forgiveness of God and other people for times when your biases have hurt others. Or even when biases and racism has hurt others that maybe you didn't have direct involvement in. We can repent of those things too, on behalf of others. That's part of what it means to be in Christian community. Number three, believe that God intends for us to be community. Let's grab onto this gift that God wants to give us and live into it now, as much as we can experience it now before Jesus returns, to be a community of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And finally, listen and learn from the experiences of people who aren't like you. 
on the Facebook page we started this this year. I'm going to put some different resources this week in the Seminary for Everyone category. So if after the sermon you want to learn more about this, I'll, I got a podcast and an article and a few other things. If you want to dig more into this and how you learn from the experiences of other people, I'll give you some resources. But what I wanted to say about this number four is that we, one way to really move forward on this is to monitor your inputs. Monitor your inputs means pay attention every week to what is going into your brain and into your heart. Is there any chance for some other viewpoints or learning from other viewpoints to happen in the regular course of your week? Or are you listening to, are you getting inputs from people who reaffirm the thing you already think all the time? If you do, there's very little hope for change unless you get knocked off a donkey. And I think we're invited to, to, to consider some other inputs. This uh, last month, I was at a meeting with some colleagues from the seminary. I ended up eating lunch with three women who all have PhDs and all happen to be African American. And for an hour and 15 minutes or something, they generously, even though I didn't know them very well, told me stories about their experiences of trying to be academics as black women in Christian, mostly Christian institutions. And it was amazing that they trusted me enough to do that and also heartbreaking to hear how many more obstacles they had to try to get to the teaching roles that they have now than I've had as somebody with a PhD who didn't have to go through those same challenges. And I left the lunch with a whole different appreciation. We really need those kinds of conversations, don't we? In order for you to really understand where someone else is coming from, I want to live in the kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation, don't you? There's some work for us to do. It involves some humility, some vulnerability. It involves some repentance. It involves listening to other people and admitting that you may be at fault at times. And that's for everyone. It's not just for people in the dominant culture. It's for everyone for us to grow and understand. But the goal is to be transformed by the gospel where Jesus says, that stuff is not part of my design. And in the kingdom of God, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. It's unbelievable to think what you have accomplished and continue to accomplish. I pray for Mill City Church and the church as a whole, God, that you would bring gospel healing into our lives that you would bring wholeness, that you would bring redemption, restoration, that you would help us learn, that you would help us repent, that you would help us to move forward in the kingdom that you are leading, that you are inviting us into. Help us not to be scared, help us not to be defensive, help us to be generous towards each other as we do this, but God, help us to move forward, don't let us stay where we are. We love you and we confirm that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we're grateful for your leadership in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.